So we are starting a whole new book today. For most of this year, we'll be doing mostly, probably, most of this year. Uh, Yes, I need that. We'll be looking at the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, And today, we get to look at the story of, of, of Hannah. Now, most of you know, we named our first child, Hannah, Nisa, from, from his, way before she knew me, had always had this dream of having children, the first child to be a daughter, and we would name her Hannah. And I asked Hannah today, I said, hey, do you know I'm going to be preaching all about your namesake today? Do you want to stay and listen to it? And she was like, nah, I'd rather go to children's church and play. So we're not there yet. But anyways, we named her Hannah because we admire Hannah in the Bible, not because she was this pristine heroine in the text, but because she was a real woman with real problems who realized that God was her only hope. And we wish that for our daughter, and we wish that for all of you. And so let's now listen together intently to the Word of God. Would you please stand if you are able? It's a bit of a long reading, so if you need to sit, please feel free to do so. Uh, We're going to read from... 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let us listen intently together to the inerrant word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Alihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, for Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your amazing and beautiful word to us. Lord, there are so many voices vying for our attention. So many of them want to lie to us and tell us that we are worthless. But your word tells us otherwise. Your word tells us that we have infinite worth because we are valuable to you. And if that's true, then that is enough. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us see today how wonderful that is, how all-encompassing that is, that your love for us is truly all we need. And in that, that we might have freedom to worship you in ways that produce inexpressible joy. And we pray this In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Please be seated. As Americans, we are a nation of king haters. We have a 240-year history of pretty much hating everything about kings and kingship. To us, as Americans, when we mention king, we think oppression, abuse of power, colonial times, founding fathers. It's kind of the air we breathe which makes it really difficult for us to understand a lot about the ancient Near Eastern world and Israel, because in Israel, the thought of kings and kingship would have brought up a whole different host of emotions and thoughts and, 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 and hopes. In, in Hannah's world, the world in which she lived, kingship equaled safety, security, prosperity. Pretty much everything about living the ancient Near East Hebrew dream. And so the book of, of 1 Samuel, the book of First and Second Samuel, really is one book. It's all about kings, which means 
in its, ANE, in its ancient Near Eastern cultural terms. It's a book about the people's quest for safety and security and prosperity. And as the story unfolds, we start to see how it is that people overall will look for those things in just about everything and anything than the one thing that's able to provide it. And so in this story of kings, this big meta-narrative story of kings, God starts out this grand theme by making it personal, by looking at this one lonely rural farmer's wife um, who, just like the whole nation of Israel around her, is looking for safety, for security, and for prosperity in the wrong things. Israel's looking for a king, but so is Hannah. She's looking for a little king. She's looking for something that's going to provide her with that safety and security and prosperity that she thinks she so, that she does so desperately wants, and, and, and it takes the form for her of childbirth, becoming a fruitful vine for her culture, for her nation, Israel, which was, at that time, the standard of social worth and approval. And so... As we see the story unfold, I hope that we will see, um, by the end of the story, we'll see that God, um, as he often does, is willing to crush Hannah under a cultural crisis of the expectations that she can never meet in order to back her into a corner where she will find the only king who can actually come through on her promises. And in this, she finds salvation and expressible joy. So that's the basic idea, the basic pattern, the thesis, the big idea of this passage is that God will use cultural expectations and crisis to force us into the corner with Christ so as to bring salvation and inexpressible joy. God will use cultural crisis to force us into the corner with Christ so as to bring about salvation and inexpressible joy. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, crushed under cultural crisis. I love the story of the sirens. Many of you know the story of the sirens, probably the famous, most famous story of the sirens in Greek mythology is from, uh, from the Odyssey when Odysseus is on a ship. He wants to hear, there's, a, there's an island with these beautiful mythological women slash bird creatures who sing. Their songs are so beautiful that they tempt the sailors who pass the island to steer in and be so allured to them that they steer in and shipwreck on the rocks and die. And, and Odysseus wants to hear what they're saying, wants to hear the beautiful song, but live through it. So he, he takes all his sailors, has them put beeswax in his ears so they can't hear, tells them to tie himself to the mast so that he cannot get out and instructs them, no matter how much I beg and plead and yell for you to let me go, do not let me go, and he sails past this island of beautiful women and their song, and he hears, he hears their singing. And interestingly, for our cultural connotation, what they're singing is, is not uh, just about beauty or, or physical beauty or tempting with physical beauty. They're actually enticing Odysseus with the seductive power of secret knowledge, which is what our culture does to us as well. But the siren story, the sirens really doesn't end there. The, the, 
The sirens and what the, and their, their allure to danger and, and destruction are recalled in just about every modern horror movie where people are drawn away from safety by some seductive quality that draws them to their destruction. You know that part in the movie where they see something and they start to go after it and you're like, no, don't go out, the, don't leave the cabin. You're going to die. <laughs> It's, it's, it's recalled in the brutality of addiction. We see this in our, much of our ministry to addicts when they're recalled again by the allure of the drug and back into it or the sexual experience as a lamb to slaughter. The, sir, the sirens, I love the story of the sirens and I, they have so much mythological power because there's, there's so much truth to what underlay, underlies the story. There are voices that allure us, that, that, that seduce us uh, to our own destruction, and they surround us everywhere. We have our own sirens. Our whole culture, the cultural pressure and expectation that's both fed and fueled by the media, ministry, uh, media <laughs> machine of advertising that tells us over and over and over again uh, using shame and guilt and desire to allure us to submit to these little false kings who will forsake us, who cannot come through on their promises. The underlying message of our culture that we receive every day is that unless you have the right career, the right six-figure salary, you have the right education, you drive the right car, you live in the right house, you have the right zip code, you're part of the right social network, you have the right relationship, you are connected to the right people politically, you have the right wardrobe, the right hair, you aren't too old, you're not too young, you're not too fat, you're not too skinny, you're not too smart, you're not too dumb, whatever, unless you have these things you will not be worth anything. In the church, it takes a different form sometimes. If you are not at a specific level of sinlessness, if you don't, or you're not able to fake a certain level of sinlessness in your life, you're looked down upon and you are not worthy. You are worthless or so the sirens sing. And Hannah had her sirens too. Hannah's pain is that she's barren. She cannot produce children. For us, uh, in an egalitarian world where many women choose to not have children in order to pursue careers, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But in the ancient Near East, it was devastating. A, woman, a woman's value, the most important things in the culture were to have lots of sons for agricultural produce so that you could build wealth and have lots of sons to produce for the military so that you could conquer the surrounding nations and be protected from them. And so what produced honor in the ancient world for women and saved them from pity and shame was being able to produce children, to be a fruitful vine for their nation. It was what put them on a social pedestal of prominence and respect in the much the way that it, education or a six-figure salary or whatever does for us. And it wasn't just that she was barren. She had a constant stream of ridicule pouring over her, telling her that she was worthless. Penina. It says in the text that Penina provoked her grievously which is a super smoothed out translation. 
that it says thundered at her. It uses this illustration of a thunderstorm to produce the, this, this, this situation that she was in. There was a constant, she was in a constant storm of criticism externally and internally. All her emotions were in a constant storm of feeling worthless, without value. And that's what she wanted more than anything else. It wasn't love that she wanted. Her husband loved her. But she wanted to be worthy. She wanted self-worth. That was the little king that she worshipped that was failing her and causing her to be overwhelmed with bitterness and despair and utter feelings of worthlessness. Hannah was being crushed under the crisis of cultural expectations, but there's this one line that's repeated twice. And if you know anything about Hebrew, that's important. They didn't have italics. They didn't have word processors. So in Hebrew, writing, when they wanted to catch your attention, they would say it twice. And the twice, the thing that it says twice the thing that's so important is, is this. Why was she barren? Because the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Why would he do that? Why would God do such an evil thing or seemingly evil thing in, in, in shutting her off from honor in that culture? Second thing. He did it to force her into the corner with Christ. He did it to force her into the corner with Christ. Uh, On April 16th of 2004, I walked out of the county detox for the third time. I had the clothes on my back and 37 cents in my pocket, and I had been absolutely forced into a corner where I had no option left in life other than to trust God was going to provide for me from clothing to food to shelter to everything. And being stuck in that spot with no other options, that's what I did. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to me, the worst thing that ever happened in my life, but it was the best thing that ever happened in my life because it's exactly what I needed to give up on all the little false kings that I was worshiping and to stop listening to the sirens and to submit myself to God and and his goodness. And that's what we see Hannah doing in this text. Look what she does. There is a, in verse nine, it says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. This isn't just that she got it from dinner. She doesn't, wasn't just getting up from dinner to excuse herself. She wasn't eating. There, in the Hebrew, this has a lot of weight to it. It's a moment of resolution. She's being drawn. It's like the person who, at the end of their rope, having tried everything else, is now finally ready to try God. There is an intensity of prayer. She is praying so hard that only her mouth is moving, and I don't even think she knows. Have you ever been there? so overwhelmed with grief, so overwhelmed with distress that you just lock yourself in your room and you pray and you can't even pray. Your lips are moving, but inside you can't even form words really. 
she's praying so hard, Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk. That's some crazy prayer. That's some like serious, like get down, ugly face, crying, spit coming out of your mouth, just completely unaware of your surroundings because you are just so intensely praying to God as your last option and your last hope. And from the text, we can also see that it went on for a while. It says that she continued to pray. It was really, her prayer was multiplied is what it says. She was there face down praying like that for a long time. Can you relate to that, man? Have you been there? But here's the thing. Here's the thing about her prayer. There's an inherent assumption in her prayer. She's coming to the Lord of hosts who she understands to be the creator of heaven and earth to the tabernacle at Shiloh and the inherent assumption underneath all of it is that this God, this Lord of hosts would actually care about the problems of an unknown peasant woman from a rural backwater town in Israel and nobody from nowhere. But she's convinced that this God does care about her problems so much that he's willing to intervene in her life. You know what? That's true. That is true. It's a huge distinction of Christianity. That God is not this omnipotent power that is so transcendent that he has no connection with us, but he's also imminent. He's with us. Like I said, when we began, his all-powerfulness, his ability to know all things at once, his ability to be ever-present everywhere, all at the same time, when you think those things through, it means that he is able to give each and every one of us his undivided attention at all times. God saw her. God was watching her. God was listening to her in the same way that he listens to us. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of that desperate prayer, that intensity of prayer, her being drawn from her despair into the temple by God, we see in it the very first glowing embers in her mind with the realization that if God is for me, if God is for me, if God loves me, then that's enough. Then that's more important than anything else. We see the first realization dawn on her mind that if I am precious to God, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. If I am precious to God, if we are precious to God, It doesn't matter if we have the six-figure salary or live in the right zip code because those things are going to fade away. But he has something even more astonishing promised for us. If we are precious to God, if you are precious to God, Christian, and you are, it means that your weakness is not and will never be a reason for him to abandon you. He is not a little king who will fail you. He is the king of kings who will never abandon you. All of this 
has the hallmarks of someone coming online, someone coming into a living faith, called in by God, overwhelmed by the Spirit, praying in words that are too deep to even register, groaning too deep for words. And then she makes this crazy vow at the end of it, or in the midst of it. She says, the one thing that I have desperately wanted so bad, the one thing that I have thought I had to have to give me glory, I want it, but now I want it for you. I want to give all that glory back to you, Lord. She forfeits all the benefit of a son right there. The son will not live with her. The son's going to be a Nazarite, which is almost a civilian version of the high priest. He lives in the same level of holiness. He lives in the temple. He leaves the family. He will not come back. He will not provide for her or her family. He will not pick crops. He will not go to war. Well, he will go to war, but for the nation maybe. She, she gives up. She gives up all the benefit of the son to her. Why? Because she doesn't need it anymore. It's not the thing she's, she's not enslaved to it anymore is the basis of her security and her salvation and her protection. She now has something better. And she knows it. And then at the end, verse 18, it says, and then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Isn't that beautiful? So now maybe you're saying, okay, Rob, great story. What does that have to do with us? How is this third part of salvation and expressible joy that we see with Hannah, what does that have anything to do with us? Nice story about a woman who finds comfort in some form of spirituality that's great for her, but I got real problems. I've got real pressures. I really feel worthless. I have... Uh, I am not in life where I thought I should be and I'm ashamed. Um, I feel like I need these certain status symbols to feel okay and to have the respect of people and I don't have them. And I'm ashamed and I'm embarrassed. I have sin in my life. It keeps recurring and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed and I'm hiding out. What does this say to me? I've got real shame and I need to know if there's an answer for me. Well, we believe, we believe the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 24 that he said basically everything from Moses and the prophets is all talking about him. That the whole Bible from beginning to end is teaching us things about Jesus and showing Jesus forth into the world. And there are tons of images here that foreshadow the reality of Jesus. There's the whole of the tabernacle that Hannah goes to, which is full of the pictures of Jesus and what he is and who he will be. There's Eli, the high priest, who intercedes for her as God's high priest. That's huge. Uh, The son that God gives to Hannah is the only person, really, other than David, to be all the offices of Israel, prophet, priest, and a king, almost a king, a judge in Israel, foreshadowing all the offices of Jesus and what he will be and what he will do for us. 
Hannah's barrenness and the song that she sings in the next chapter are really the Old Testament foundation of Mary's virginity and the song that Mary sings in Luke, praising God for the Messiah to come. And Elkanah and Hannah are at the tabernacle to, act, to offer a sacrifice for sins, which is a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. But that's not what I want to show you. This is what I want you to see because it is beautiful. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him into the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. This was, this was not the sacrifice for sins. That had already happened. This is when Elkanah and Hannah brought their son to the temple to hand him over to Eli, and they were paying a vow. This was a, what was called a peace offering, specifically a vow offering, which was a voluntary sacrificial offering made in thanksgiving over an astonishing answered prayer. But here's the thing. The, the text, our text, your ES, the, our, our English text, it says, it says they, they, they came along with a three-year-old bull. The Hebrew text, it says they came with three bulls, not a three-year-old bull. And a lot of translators have said, well, that's got to be a mistake because that's just crazy talk. No one would come with three bulls. It was a year-old bull that was meant for the sacrifice, And so, even though the Hebrew text says three bulls, there's some other ancient versions uh, that speak differently, and and, and so they've amended the text to say a three-year-old bull. But the problem, the problem is that the grain offering and the wine offering are also three times the amount of the offering that they're commanded to make in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. And so it makes way more sense to think that they have brought three bulls and three times the amount of grain offering and three times the amount of wine offering. They have brought this astonishingly, overwhelmingly extravagant act of worship to God for the prayer that God has answered for them. And what, has that, what was that prayer? The son that they're going to give away? Part of it, maybe, yeah, for sure, but I think there was so much more of it than that. Listen, and here's where we figure it out. This is what, this is the liturgy that was most likely read during the peace offering given in the temple that day when Elkanah and Hannah came in with his wife. It's the last section of Psalm 22. Let me read it. I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offering, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of all the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, maybe some of you know Psalm 22 starts out like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the line that Jesus said on the cross. Jesus is calling attention to us of the fact that Psalm 22 is all about him. That all the types and shadows of the Old Testament that spoke of God's goodness and faithfulness and salvation were all talking about Jesus, that he was the king who would come and save the world, that he was the Messiah that would come and bring salvation to all mankind. And that The people yet unborn, that's us. It would be proclaimed to us what Jesus has done. It tells the story of how Jesus was forsaken for us on the cross so that we would never be forsaken by God. All that time, Hannah was seeking a king in these cultural expectations of childbearing to give her safety, security, prosperity, all these things that she so desperately wanted and she was devastated by her sense of worthlessness uh, and of insufficiency. But she came to understand through the shadows that God gave to Israel that there was a real king, a king who would come through who would give her what she really longed for, a king who would never leave her or forsake her. And what Hannah had in shadows, we have in substance. We understand the reality that that king is Jesus, that he did come, that he did die on the cross to cover our shame, to make us united with himself so that we might be able to stand in front of God and perfect righteousness. And what the liturgy of the peace offering was saying, it was reiterating all that, crying out all of Israel's hopes for the coming of Messiah as Elkanah and Hannah sacrificed this bull in an, in an expression of overwhelming joy and gratitude for everything that Yahweh would still do for his people. But that we know in reality, in Jesus. So here's, this is what I want you to take home today, okay? In Hebrews chapter two, it says the devil has the fear of death over us, which holds us captive. What that means is we're so afraid of death, we're so afraid of our mortality that we listen to the lies of the sirens and we run to false kings and it causes us shame and sorrow and sadness. We sin 
We're convinced that God has forsaken us because of that sin. And then because we know that God doesn't love us, we run to some other option, some other lesser thing to try and find safety and security and prosperity. And what this is saying is don't do that. What this is telling us, what this is telling you, is that because God forsook Jesus on the cross, he will not, he cannot forsake you. He cannot forsake you. He has already forsaken Jesus for our sins, and that's over and done with, so that now we can run to him, even in our shame, even in our, in our pain, we can run to him and receive for him immediate forgiveness and love and the covering of our shame and security and safety and prosperity. And so that's why they responded with that great big extravagant praise to answer an extravagant grace. And it resulted in them inexpressible joy and God invites all of us into the same. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and for the blessing that it is to us. We love you and we are astonishingly grateful for your goodness. Lord, the sirens are singing loudly. They're telling us. They're working in perfect concert with the, with, the, with the world system that the devil has set up to put hooks in our flesh to convince us that you do not love us, to convince us that you are not enough, to convince us that because you don't love us, we should run to some other thing. Lord, when we fall, when we sin, we're convinced in our hearts and the devil tries to convince us that you don't love us, that you have forsaken us, Lord. And so I pray that we would see this story in your word and we would say to ourselves, that's not true. We will not find our safety and security and prosperity in anything other than you in anything other than your love and care for us. I pray that you would plug our ears to the sirens and that you would help us, Lord, to hear every week the beautiful and powerful voice of our Lord Jesus who tells us your sins are forgiven and you belong to me and that will never change. And in response to that, as our hearts burst forth in joy in the first glowing embers of unspeakable wonder that you are for us, I pray that we would offer back to you an extravagant praise that matches the extravagant grace you have given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.